saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Own it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that is in them and rested in the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's sort of intense. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do pray. Apart from you, uh, we can't even understand your word. We can't understand you. We m- much less can we understand um, the, these commandments. And Lord, I pray not only for tonight, but I pray for this semester that you would be our teacher, you would be our guide, you would be the one uh, who is at work, not only on our campus, but in our own hearts. Lord, uh, we pray tonight that where we need to be convicted of sin, that you graciously would bring that conviction by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we're, we're, some of us are here and we're wrestling and we don't see how you could love us as sinful as we are. And Lord, I pray that you would bring even tonight a word of encouragement, Lord uh, Jesus, that there is no sin that is greater than your grace. Um, there's nothing una- that you're unable to forgive and make right because of your death on the cross on our behalf. Lord, be with us tonight. God, us, we pray. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, I've mentioned this a lot before, but movies are kind of a big thing for me. And uh, actually, part of my, it's a little bit embarrassing to say, but part of my Tuesday ritual is I kind of always do my sermon prep, lunch, uh, Whole Foods today. Although it was beautiful today because a guy brought Bojangles into Whole Foods, which is like my dream now. Like, I can't wait to do this. And, uh, but then I go to a movie by myself, 
Going to a movie by yourself is incredible until someone sees you going to a movie by yourself and then you uh, feel lots of shame because you're like, hey, my friends are in the bathroom. I'm just chilling here for a second. But I love to do it and I'm becoming more unashamed of saying that. One of the movies I saw over the break that I loved is this movie called Her, and some of you have seen it, some of you um, have heard of it. And, um, and what I love about this movie is it wrestles with this idea of, of kind of who are we? And, and how do we even know who we are? We, we're living in this, this age that's incredibly technologically advanced, and some of us who are afraid of intimacy kind of love that because the more kind of the eye world progresses, the less introverts like me have to actually talk to people, which is a great and terrible thing. But as you're sort of watching the movie, and the, basically if you don't know the premise of the movie, the movie is Joaquin Phoenix uh, essentially falls in love with an operating system, and they have this great kind of love relationship. It sounds weird, but, uh, and it is kind of weird, but it's incredibly insightful in the age we live in. And one of the things that it made me think of as I'm watching it is there's a book by this guy named Walker Percy called Lost in the Cosmos. And he basically says this. You have it on the front. And here's what he sort of is, his kind of take on humanity and his take on us as human beings. He said this. He said... He's talking basically to us, and he says, You live in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because despite great scientific and technological advances, man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he is doing. That we have not the faintest idea of who we are or what we're doing. And and being on a college campus, this is so true, because that means even for me as a student, I graduated in 2002 from South Carolina, I had so many phases like I had the self-righteous Christian trying to find a ministry phase and then felt rejected by all the ministries. So then I did the fraternity deal and sort of like really literally transformed everything from the way I did my hair, uh, which I used to sort of try to do that like Abercrombie thing back in the day where you like gelled it up, which was, didn't really work for me, but I tried it anyways and then wore all these various sort of preppy clothes. And then I had a phase after that, you know, you've, and that's like us, we sort of look to what can give me a sense of identity. Who who am I? What is my purpose here? And I feel like in some ways college is such a that's some of the that's the question. I say all that to say this is why I want to look at the Ten Commandments. Because I think not only can you not understand who God is, what he loves and what he hates, your maker, but you can't even understand who you are, what the purpose of life is. In other words, what we're trying to do, my heart for this semester is to give you an anchor, is to give you something black and white that God not me, but what God has given us. To not only tell us who we are, but to tell, tell us who he is, that we might have this thriving relationship with him. And that's sort of the goal. I think the Ten Commandments do that for us. And so what I want to do tonight is kind of just look at, really take a, we're not kind of getting into the commandments yet. I want to take a sort of a little bit of an overview and ask the question, why did God give us these commandments? And what I want you to see is, is I think a lot of us think about it. You know, it's interesting, growing up, you know, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I, had no, I couldn't have told you what the Ten Commandments were. Like, I could have maybe named probably six or seven. You might be in the same boat where you can maybe, if I hadn't read this passage, you might could have named a couple. But if I were to say naming Commandments 1 through 10, it's kind of interesting that we as a church have kind of lost the sense of what they are or even what they mean especially. I think some of us sometimes as Christians think, oh, that's Old Testament stuff. That doesn't necessarily have to do with us. And I'm hopefully going to convince you over this semester that if it's in God's word, it has everything to do with us. And of course, we're going to understand it in light of Christ, which we're going to talk about tonight. But basically what we're saying is, why did God give us, God give us these commandments? And I think sometimes in our minds, we have this idea that God is a sort of power-hungry deity who just loves to, to tell us how things are going to be. Instead of understanding him through the light of the cross, which is to understand that his love for you runs deeper than even his love, in a sense, for his own son. Because he's, he who he loved us so much, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all, Paul writes. 
That's the God who gave us these commandments. They're the same commandments that Jesus fights with the Pharisees about because the Pharisees have taken these commandments and they've totally misapplied them. Interestingly, typically when you're, you know you're in legalism because you make God's law easier than it really is because you don't let it cut deep into your heart, which is why sometimes you take God's law and you make it very manageable so you can feel good about your relationship with God even though he's trying to use his law to break you so that you'll see your need for Jesus. We're going to talk about that. So why did God give us his law? Why did he give it to us? Three reasons. You have it on your handout. Uh, three reasons I kind of want to look at tonight, um, thinking about that question. First, thinking about how, he, he, in a sense, he gave it to protect us, he gave it to point us, and he gave it to provide something for us. So I want to look at kind of how God's law protects us, then I want to look at for a little bit where God's law points us, and then the last thing I want to look at, uh, what God's law provides for us. So that's kind of what we're doing tonight, so just stay with me. First thing we think for a second about how God's law protects us. Now what's interesting is when God, you know, if you know this story, if we could go to Exodus 31, God actually gives Moses these tablets. You know, if you've ever seen the sort of old school movies of the Ten Commandments, like here we have these tablets. And on the tablets are inscribed the Ten Commandments. What's interesting though is God did not inscribe in those commandments anything that he hadn't already inscribed on the human heart. That there's a sense in which the Bible says, Romans 1 especially, that God's law is so written in our hearts where these commandments are not saying anything, they're not teach us, teaching us anything new per se. Instead what they're doing is they're actually bringing out what we kind of already intuitively know by virtue of being made by God for God in his image. Another way of saying that is essentially every, God is not giving us new information. He's actually just giving before us so that we have this understanding of what's not only he's put within our hearts in his law, but that we have it clearly before us so that we're all clear on what he's already inscribed in our very hearts. Um, C.S. Lewis, this is part of, if you've ever read, one of his more obscure books was The Abolition of Man. And Abolition of Man is actually studying this idea of why is it that if we were to go throughout the world... Really, to the remotest religion, to the remotest part of the world, why is it that it would always be wrong for me, regardless of what religion I adhere to, or regardless of what part of the world I'm in, to to senselessly murder a 10-year-old with a shotgun? It's across the board. Like, it's not just wrong for us in America as Christians. It's wrong across the board in the world. And C.S. Lewis is kind of looking at basically the sense of shared morality. And his point is this, that basically we're instilled, it's, it's inscribed in our hearts. It's interesting, even as I say that, there's a part of us that even just gets a little bit sick to our stomachs, at least we should, because we have something built within us. And what I want you to see is God actually does that to protect us. That there's actually something, you know, another way of thinking about it is you can think of God's law like a curb. You know, the point of a curb, I was at the bank the other day, and the bank is tricky for me because I, I hate, like, I, you know... Just It makes me hate my body and the way I like reach out over it. I just don't like what's going on here, which is why I've been working out in the gym lately. And, um, but I get a little too close to it, so when I'm driving away, I hit the curb. And you're reminded, oh, there's a curb there. And the point of the curb is to, to bring protection, to bring order, to bring sort of guidance. In the, in, the, in, the, in the realest sense, if you've ever driven kind of a mountain road or if you've gone to camp with us before, like, like the last winter retreat that we did, you notice in some of those winding mountain roads, there's a rail and the point of the rail is, is both to warn us and protect us. There's a real sense that we need to be careful on this road because there's a very real sense in which we could easily sort of fall off this mountain to a fiery, crashy James, James Bondy death. Um, and what I want you to see is there's a sense in which this is, this is the first reason that God has given us these commandments. Is they're meant to protect us. They're meant to, to protect us from hurting ourselves. And they're meant to protect us from hurting one another. 
You know, when you think about Ten Commandments, it's interesting. The first four commandments have everything to do with our relationship with God. And the next six have everything to do with our relationship with one another. Starting with honor your father and your mother, all the way to do not covet. Covening is going to be a lot of fun. Especially when we talk about, like, dating relationships, boyfriends and girlfriends. It is going to be a lot of fun. There's a sense in which both of those sides, God is giving us a picture. He's protecting us from hurting ourselves and from one another. Um, you know, for Christmas, this is what I think about. This idea of it's, a, it's meant to protect us. Uh, my kids got a trampoline for Christmas, or I should say, San- I don't want to say Santa. I got my kids a trampoline for Christmas because um, I'm Santa, and I get to eat the milk and cookies, and it's great. And, um, and so what we did, though, is we got this trampoline from, from Amazon, and uh, I actually Instagrammed it because it came to me, and I'm, my wife is way handier. You know, I've been called by friends the emotional woman of our relationship, which is hard uh, but true. And so my wife is way handier than me, but she was inside, like, cleaning up the house, getting the presents ready. So here I am by myself trying to put this trampoline together, something I've never done in my life. When I was growing up, I don't know if it was like this for you. You probably are, or, you know, I'm older than you, but, like, the trampoline we had was just like a, a tra- you know, like a, just a trampoline. There was no, like, pad around it. There was no, like, net over it. And we could just, we could have jumped to our deaths, quite honestly, just because there was nothing to protect us. But so as I'm setting up my kid's trampoline, one of the things that we, you know, that came with it that my wife was really adamant that we have is this net, these mesh nets that you probably grew up with. And so we're putting this trampoline together and we're putting up this net. And when I think about God's law, it's like that net. I mean, the point of that net is sort of weird as it can be sometimes, and you kind of look at it and it's awkward. The whole point of it is to protect my kids from really, really hurting themselves. Even though there's a loophole because my son did fall out of the gate, like this head on the ground. So it's not like foolproof. But the point of it, the idea of it, is to I don't want my kids to hurt themselves. You have to understand that this is part of God's heart to you and, even, and, and God's heart to his people and even giving them these commandments. It's his heart for you. Sometimes we're foolish because we think we know how to live life better than God does. And how foolish we are, and this is where we're very Pinocchio, right? Where we're very sort of, we think we know more than we know. And part of what I want to happen this semester is for you to understand that no one knows what's better for you than the Lord himself. And part of him giving you these commandments is to protect you and give you what's good so you can thrive and flourish. And not just you, but our community, our campus, your relationships. So first, how it protects us. But then second, there should be a sense as we looked at it is where does God's law point us? That's what I want to ask. And what's fascinating about these commandments is they were given through a mediator. There's a sense in which, you know, Moses, if you saw the passage, they actually at one point say to Moses, Moses, please, like, we can't deal with the, we can't deal with this God. We don't know what to do with him. You please speak to him and then speak to us. They were asking for a mediator, someone to kind of stand between them. And the idea of a mediator in scripture is pretty interesting. Because the idea is basically someone who's very close to God, but someone who's also very close to the people. And that was Moses, right? Moses, on the one hand, he goes to Mount Sinai and he spends, he spends you know, time with, with Yahweh, with the Lord himself, and, and receives. We're going to see if we get a 31, he receives the commandments and then brings them down to read them to the people. But what's fascinating is, if you know, if we were to go to Exodus 31, is Exodus 32. If you know the Bible, you know what happens. As soon as Moses brings down, after God has spoken these words... Moses goes back to, to be with God alone. God eventually gives him these tablets in 31. And then in 32, it's fascinating because Moses comes down fresh with these, with these two tablets. And what does he find? He finds God's people breaking the first two commandments. That you literally find some sort of, in this kind of orgy around a golden calf. 
where they're sort of, you know, doing whatever they're doing. And essentially what the golden calf is, is they're saying, God, we don't want you to say who you are. We want to have a sense of saying who you are because we'd like to control and have a say in and put a limit on what you can ask of us, what you can say to us, what you can do to us. And Moses, if you know, he has a temper and he breaks the, he breaks the tablet so we can go on. But what's fascinating is this idea of two things immediately happen. Immediately happen as soon as God gives these commandments. On the one hand, we need a mediator. We sense this because we're not sure how to deal with this holy God. But on the other hand, we, you know, it's, it's so ironic that as soon as Moses brings them down, they're already breaking them. Because part of what I, ha- I hope happens for me and for you is I hope the Ten Commandments break you. Not because I love to like hurt people's feelings, but because that's actually part of the reason God gave them. That if we were to go to Paul, especially in Galatians, and kind of look at what Paul says, he basically says what the point of God's law, huge, even maybe we could say the biggest point of God's law, is it's like a mirror. And if you know anything about a mirror, what I use a mirror for is I look at a mirror in the morning and I look at everything that's wrong with me. I see things that need, I see hair that needs to be brushed or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I see a face that needs to be shaved. I see teeth that feel like the bottom of a lake and need to be brushed. I mean, I see, you know, things in my, you know, that's the point of a mirror is is it shows us what is wrong. It shows us what is off. And part of what Paul is saying is God's law functions in that way. That as we sort of unpack these commandments, hopefully, Lord willing, if you're listening, you have eyes to see and ears to hear, the Holy Spirit's at work in your heart, you're going to see things about God you never knew. You're going to see things about, so just take, you know, even the, even the understanding of not taking the Lord's name in vain. You know, have you ever thought that that's so much deeper than saying a cuss word that has everything to do with the way you live your life in a way that's wholehearted, in the words of Brene Brown, in a, in a way that's, that, that is unhypocritical? A heart that is not at all divided, that you don't call yourself a Christian and act one way on Sunday and then go on Wednesday and act like a completely different person around a different set of friends. We're going to unpack it in a way that I hope shows you that you need Jesus. That actually God intends his law to break you in a sense so that you see your need for mending. You see what Herman Melville wrote in, in Moby Dick, that, we, that all of us Presbyterians and pagans alike are desperately cracked about the head and desperately in need of mending. That the law of God actually works in that way where it shows us that we don't have it all together. It shows us that we're not as good as we think we are. It shows us that we have indeed in the, road, in the, in the words of Romans 3, we have fallen short of what we're meant to be as human beings. And what, what we're meant to be as, as you know, sons and daughters and what we're meant to be as friends and what we're meant to be as you know, students and what we're meant to be as you name it. That we've fallen short and, and we need... The Lord Jesus, uh, Flannery O'Connor doesn't, there's no one that gets this idea of what do we do with our guilt better than Flannery O'Connor. And part of what I'm trying to say is the law makes you guilty to drive you to Jesus. The only one that can forgive your guilt, the only one that can free you from your guilt. Flannery O'Connor's got this great story called The Peeler. And the, the character is Hazel Motes. And Hazel Motes is an interesting guy. He's, um, he kind of, you, know, you find him in the scene and he, he finds this blind man and his daughter handing out tracts. And, and actually he follows them. He's intrigued. And, it, and, and the old man and the daughter keep trying to say to him, trying to keep give him a track and, and try to keep saying to him, you need Jesus. We can tell, the blind man says, I can't see, but I can tell that there's this need for Jesus. And Hazel Motes has this great line where he says, I don't need Jesus. I've got Leora Watts, who's this girl that he's been sleeping with. And, uh, and he's sort of, you know, he's resisting, he's resisting, and he's resisting. And they're trying, to, you know, they're trying and trying and trying to convert him. And he's resisting, and he's resisting, and he's resisting. 
And then you get to the end of the story and you get a little bit of a back picture of his life. And it turns out that Hazel Metz, when he was 10, went to the circus with his dad. And O'Connor, she tells the story, it's beautiful. She says, went to the circus and his dad went in with the adults. He sent Hayes to go see the monkeys and he and the, the men were going to see this peep show. Well, Hayes leaves the monkeys and goes with his dad and he sneaks into this peep show and he's 10 at the time and he has no idea what's happening and he looks inside this coffin and there's a naked woman. And for days, he is just speechless. He's never seen anything like that before. He feels lots of shame. He's quiet. He goes back to his house and his mom can tell. She keeps asking him, what have you seen? What have you seen? And his mom is a bad, she like hits him with a stick. What have you seen? She can tell he's seen something. And here's what O'Connor says. Um, The mom says to him, you have it in your hand out. The mom says to him, Jesus died to redeem you, she said. And he said, I never asked him. And he forgot the guilt of the tent for the unnamed, for the nameless, unplaced guilt that was in him. The next day, he took his shoes. This is an incredible image. The next day, he took his shoes in secret out into the woods, and he filled the bottoms of them with stones and small rocks. And he laced them up tight, and he walked in them through the woods, what he knew to be a mile. He thought that ought to satisfy him, but nothing happened. If a stone had fallen, he would have taken it for a son. And after a while, he drew his feet out the sand and let them dry. And then he put his shoes on again with the rocks still in them. And he walked a half mile back before he took them off again. And when I read that, I think this is, this is, a, young, this is a kid who's wrestling with guilt. And, and there's a sense that we can say that the commandments work in a similar way to the rocks and the shoes. But not in a way where we think we can actually do something to, pun- to self-atone. To punish ourselves in a way that we could somehow undo our sin and make it right with God. We know if you know anything about yourself, you can never do that. Which is why Paul says if you could do that, Jesus actually on the cross in Galatians 2, Paul says that Jesus actually died in vain. If there was any other way for you to be right with God, then Jesus' death on the cross is in vain. And yet the commandments function in a way where we're guilty. Where we see our guilt, but what it's meant to do is to show us that there's one who lived the life of law-keeping we could never live. And there's one who died the death as a lawbreaker that we deserve to die, and his name is Jesus. And the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments in, this, in this beautiful way point us to our need for a Savior. So on the one hand, first, they sort of give us this, this, uh, this understanding of they protect us. On this other hand, they point us to our need for Jesus. And the last thing I want you to see quickly together is they also provide something for us. The Puritans used to love to say that, that uh, the law of God takes us by the hand and it leads us to Jesus because we need a Savior. And then as soon as we are converted, we trust in Jesus. Jesus takes us by the hand and he leads us back to the law where it can no longer condemn us, but where it still is a pattern to us. It still is the very place where we learn what God loves and we learn what God hates. And we learn to love the things that God loves and we learn to hate the things that God, lo- that, 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 hate the things that God hates. Never perfectly. Not in a way where we ever think that we don't still need Jesus. You will always need Jesus. And part of growth in the Christian life is seeing more and more and more and more your need for Jesus. But in a way where we have a sense of there are black and whites. We have a sense of there are things that God loves and there are things that God hates. And we're not speaking those for him. He's speaking those to us. And that's, that's the sort of third part, what God's law provides for us. It's a sense, you know, it's interesting when you think about the tablets. Most of us, I think, when we thought about the two tablets, we thought, and what, at least when I was reading it, I always thought like this. I thought you had sort of two sets of, you had the first four in one tablet, you had the six through ten and the, uh, you know, five through ten in the second tablet. And, and the more that sort of researchers have looked at things, this is actually, we think what God is doing is he's actually taking a cue from ancient times when kings would make sort of treaties or covenants with people. 
And what they would do is they would have one, you know, sort of covenant record for themselves that they would keep. And then they would have another that they would give to the people that they would keep. And the idea was they both were on the same page, so to speak, about what it meant to be in relationship together. Here were the, here was the, if we can put it this way, defining the relationship. You know, we talk about in our area of like the DTR, like when you're dating. One of the most frustrating things about dating is when a guy's pursuing you or a girl is pursuing you and you have no idea what their motives are and you have no idea what you should expect. Like that is, that's, there are kind of two ways to do relationships, right? Any relationships. You can either do sort of unspoken expectations that in the short term feel kind of like this is going to be incredible and then long term you're like, oh, this is the worst. They're incredibly frustrating because you're not on the same page. Or you can have healthy relationships, what we call if you've read the book Boundaries, which is, we're going to speak our expectations. And I'm going to say, gentleman suitor, here's what my intentions are. And then you're going to say, lady suity, here's what I've been thinking. The idea is when you speak your expectations, you're on the same page. Well, here, if we can say it this way, this is God speaking his, expect- this is God speaking his expectations of us. Right? Here's what I'm saying. This is what it means to be in relationship with me. Never, you're never going to be in this relationship perfectly. You're always going to need Jesus, which is why Jesus came. But being in a relationship with me is going to be a lot of forgiveness and repentance. A lot of grace and forgiveness that leads to repentance. You know, Romans 2, the kind, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You know, God's kindness always leads us to repentance. Turning away, newness of life, changing of habits, growth. But God's kindness always leads us to repentance. And we're going to look at actually next week how God starts the Ten Commandments, which is not, hey, do these ten things and then I'll love you. He says, if you look at the prologue, I've already freed you. You already belong to me. I've done everything necessary to achieve your salvation. Now live this way. Huge difference. We're going to talk about that next week. I'll close with this. There's a... Um, this past summer, I spoke at a camp in Atlanta, and uh, it was one of those camps where I was sort of staying, you know, in this cabin over here, and um, the camp was kind of remote, and it had no lights at all, and so when I do the night sessions, uh, you know, I, I basically, I, I didn't really have a, I have a terrible sense of direction, so I couldn't really find my way back to my cabin, so this one night, the first night I was there, pitch black, I'm trying to kind of navigate my way to my room, and I'm completely lost. Like, I literally, like I'm, like, I'm on this trail, but I can barely see my feet before me. And, like, I have no idea. And I'm not in panic mode because, you know, I had real poor cell reception, but I'm sure, like, there are people around. Like, I'm not in full-out panic. But I definitely feel very lost and don't know where I'm going. And thankfully, this kid, he's probably 13. It's, like, a, a younger camp. Comes up, and he's got a flashlight. And he's like, hey, man, takes me by the shoulder. He's like, hey, I can tell you're lost. Just something like as a 33-year-old man to be, like, rescued by a 13-year-old. <laughs> and, um, and so he's, like, got his flashlight. And he basically guides me back to my cabin. And that's actually, as I was thinking about today, I was actually thinking, that's actually everything that I want you to understand about God's law. Then on the one hand, it, it yeah, I could have really, like, if I had kept going, like, pitch black dark, in the, like, this is in the woods, like, I, I could have legitimately hurt myself, because there were a couple times where I, like, tripped over some rocks. Could have legitimately hurt myself. But the more important thing to see, I was, like, I was lost, like, in darkness, and need, I literally, like, this might sound cheesy, but I literally needed someone to come, like, help me, to rescue me, if you will. But then even more importantly than that, I needed someone to show me the way. Like, I needed someone to shine a light, you know, to be, a, you know, literally what Psalm 119 says about God's law. A light into my path, a lamp into my feet. And, and that's, again, why God gave us his law, to not only protect us, to point us to Jesus, 
but also to show us the way, to show us the way that is pleasing to him, to show us the way that we flourish as human beings. Then let's pray together. <clears throat> Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. Um, Lord, I do pray even as we think about this, that you would be the one uh, at work in us, that you would be the one changing us, or that you would be the one showing us maybe we're here and we, we don't see our need for Jesus, that you would show us um, our need for Jesus. But Lord, also that those of us who, who know Jesus, that you would show us the way that is pleasing to you and grow us in holiness, grow us in his likeness, we pray. We pray sings in his name. Amen. Today, and in these halls.